All right, let's turn to Romans again. Romans 15 today, it's the third of four sermons in Romans 14 and 15, I guess specifically 14.1 to 15.13, four sermons on this subject of the strong and the weak and Christian freedom, all of that. We're in the third of four sermons, Romans 15.1 to 6, the title, the example of Christ. And I punted on that one. If you have an ESV study Bible, you'll see that it's the, the header there. I think it is above the section. So sometimes, I don't know, I couldn't do better and it just was sitting there. So that's where the title came from this, this week. Romans 14 and 15 again is a call to all Christians, but especially the strong, to love each other. In that sense, it is a continuation of Romans 12 and 13, which were also practical instruction on what Christian love looks like in this world. The issue in chapters 14 and 15, as it says in verse 2 of chapter 14, is that, quote, one, pers- one person believes he may eat anything. He feels free to, to eat anything in his conscience, while the weak person eats only vegetables. That's the presenting issue in this section. In other words, some Christians believe it is wrong for them to eat certain things, and others believe it is right for them to eat those things. And the question is, how do you love each other in that situation? When Christian freedom and the conscience come into play in practical religious matters, how do we maintain the unity we have in Christ? How do we, how do we love one another? Paul's discussion of these matters then continues into chapter 15. Then it's an unfortunate chapter break, as many commentators and preachers have said through the years. We didn't control that, uh, but there they are. It's just continuing on in. You'll, you'll get the sense of that when we read verse 1. It's almost as if he's just continuing, and in fact, he is. He was, he was not aware of, of uh, chapter and verse divisions when he's literally penning it or or dictating it. For Paul, nothing would be more tragic than for a congregation of Christian believers to fight over trivial or peripheral matters such as food and drink or the application of various religious practices. Since the gospel is not at stake in the church in Rome as it was in Galatia, Paul's focus is not upon uncompromisingly opposing false teachers here, but upon getting those who disagree about food and drink to put such things in context, even though in this case there is right and wrong and there are weak and strong, and to consider the need for love and unity when we can't agree on these things. As we turn to our text, again the first part of Romans 15, Paul continues to make the case for the importance of Christian love and unity, continuing his discussion of how the weak and the strong are to relate to each other. And here now, Paul will start drawing this matter to a close, bringing it in for a landing, but really zooming out, as it were. And this means that he will be referencing Jesus Christ. This means he will be referencing the Old Testament, and this means he will land finally on the glory 
of God. Let's pray. We'll read the, just the text today, and then we'll work through it. Father, we thank you for your word. Where else would we turn for not only the words of eternal life, but the truth for all of life and godliness? How, how would we know you? How would we know your will? How would we know your Son? How would we know what to do together in your church? But we have your word. And I pray, Father, that you will help us each to submit to it and together uh, to live it out for your glory and our good. And we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, Romans 15, 1 to 6. Just continuing on from Romans 14, verse 1. We who are strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. Let each of us please his neighbor for his good to build him up. For Christ did not please himself, but as it is written, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. For Whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction that through endurance and through the encouragement of the Scriptures we might have hope. May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another in accord with Christ Jesus that together you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ the holy and inerrant Word of God. Okay, three points today to break it up. Number one, verses one and two, the obligations of the strong. The obligations of the strong, verses one and two. So the first two verses summarize Paul's teaching, exhortation to the strong. They should strive to be patient with and build up the weak instead of simply seeking to please themselves and think only of themselves and their freedom. Verses 1 and 2 again. Look there. We who are strong is the only people in this text for whom there is an obligation mentioned here. We who are strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. Verse 2, let each of us please his neighbor for his good to build him up. Well, there's more here than, than, than just patiently bearing with the failings of the weak and saying nothing. We'll get to that. Paul's language is, is emphatic. It's uh, quite expressive. And he continues to assign to the strong. That's the group now which Paul explicitly identifies himself. He continues to assign to the strong full responsibility in their dealings with their weaker brothers and sisters. 
The weak, we remember, are those Christians who fail to grasp the fact that all things are clean, they may eat anything, and whose consciences will not allow them to do certain things not forbidden in Scripture. In order to encourage the weak, the strong are called to bear with them, precisely because the strong are able to deal with those who have not fully comprehended the issues yet. The focus here is upon putting the needs of others before the exercise of our personal freedom. When the gospel is not at stake, Paul puts people over principle. When the gospel is not at stake, Paul puts people, brothers and sisters, over principle. Paul is not merely asking the strong to tolerate, however. Paul is not merely asking the strong to tolerate the weaknesses of those without strength. The sense is like in Galatians 6 verse 2 where Paul calls on believers to bear each other's burdens, which does not mean endure each other as a burden. Oh, there's such a burden, but ugh. No, no, no. But help each other. You, you help each other. You bear them up in their areas of weakness. Similarly, the, the thought here is that the strong should come to the aid of the weak and help them lovingly, patiently with their deficiencies. Oh, you'd be risking offense. That's for sure. But welcome to actual family. Welcome to actual brotherhood. Welcome to discipleship. You're going to have to say to somebody, brother, sister, you're wrong, but it's okay on this issue when the gospel isn't at stake. There's a parallel with Matthew 8, 17, where Jesus bears or bore the diseases of his people. Similarly, the strong should shoulder the burden for the weak and not merely live to indulge their own pleasures. Now, given the natural tendency we have towards self-interest, certainly since the fall, we should not be surprised that some of the strong may bully the weak or otherwise treat them badly, roll their eyes, whisper. This, of course, works the other way as well, as when the weak consider the exercise of Christian freedom on the part of the strong to, to be some kind of personal affront when the strong eat and drink things which the weak do not approve of, and they judge the strong. Rather than looking down on each other, Paul instructs the strong to bear with the weak with the goal of turning the weak, that is, one who is unable to bear with others, into those who are able to see them become strong. The final phrase of verse 1 makes that plain. We're not to seek to please ourselves. In effect, summarizing a number of things that Paul has already told us in the preceding chapters, these so-called practical chapters, you, you might remember, here's a, here's a hit parade of them. Do not think more highly of yourselves than you ought. Chapter 12, verse 3. 
that we should be devoted to each other in brotherly love. Chapter 12, verse 10. That we should honor one another above ourselves. Chapter 12, verse 10. That we should not be proud, but be willing to associate with people of low position. Chapter 12, verse 16. That we should live at peace with everyone. Verse 18, chapter 12. And in chapter 13, that he who loves his fellow man fulfills the law. That the commandments are summed up by love your neighbor as yourself. That love does no harm to its neighbor because it fulfills the law. And that we are not to think about how to gratify the desires of the sinful nature. Not to please ourselves. All of that leading up to these verses. With all of this as background and context, Paul's point here in chapter 15 is that we are not to seek to please ourselves, but rather in the church we are to do as instructed in verse 2. Let each of us please his neighbor for his good to build him up. That's verse 2 of our text. Love is described here, which is what he's been describing all along, as pleasing one's neighbor. In this context, the the neighbors being fellow Christians. Now, this could be uh, misunderstood, right? Because what might please some neighbors, even Christians, would be gossip. Violence, sexual sin, slander, hatred. Well, we don't just please people in whatever they say. Paul elsewhere rejects the idea of pleasing people on its face, contending that it is incompatible with his apostolic ministry. I don't don't please men. I'm not here to please men, he would say. Compromising the gospel of Christ by flattering people or trimming back the scandal of the cross is unthinkable. What Paul calls here for here, however, is pleasing people for their good, to build them up. So it is appropriate and good then to please others insofar as it helps them advance in godliness, in goodness, that is, that they would be built up and strengthened in their faith and in godliness, their walk with Christ. Pleasing others to advance their selfish interests is excluded. Pleasing others in the sins that they're committing and you joining along, that's excluded. Pleasing others so that they will be stronger in the faith and become strong That is what is called for here and is a beautiful thing. It's clear here then that the strong Christian is not to lord his or her own free conscience over his brothers and sisters or flaunt his or her freedom in front of someone who is presumably the weaker brother or sister. Rather, because of his strength, the strong must intentionally effort to build up his brother or sister, seeking his good, her good, that that which is for the building up and good of the church and which will help the weak become strong, while 
at the same time keeping the weak from continually dragging the church down to his or her own weak level. While the strong must bear with the weaknesses of the weak, the strong must not allow the weak to eliminate Christian freedom. The strong bear patiently with the weak until the weak become strong to build them up for their good. This is an important point, by the way, because it seems that the tendency in most churches today, if we think about uh, things called things like weaponized empathy and the tyranny of the, uh, uh, the victim, vic- victim mentality and so forth, not that there aren't real victims and real abuse and, and legitimate empathy, but the tendency in most churches today is that when the weak object to something, the weak immediately and completely prevail over everyone else. We change everything based on one comment. Someone's offended. Without thinking it through, without loving, without leading. One commentator, a faithful one, Leon Morris, at least in this case, notes, quote, this principle doing something for someone else's good. This this principle must be applied with care, for great harm is done when Christians assume that in all circumstances they know what is good for other people. It must be done with humility, but it is necessary, for we may find it very easy to please people by doing or permitting something that is really harmful in the long run. The point is that we must constantly seek to do what is for the good of our neighbor rather than what is for our own good. This does not mean that the weak control the church, that they have only to express a scruple and all rush to conform. That would mean that the church would be permanently tied to the level of the weak and that life and growth would cease. Paul is not laying down a rule of conduct but enunciating a principle of tender concern. The strong must respect the weak. They must not hurt them. And at all times, they must strive for what is for their good. End quote. Now, even if they don't know it's their good yet, parents know about all this, don't we? It's the old Snickers for supper thing. What does the child think is good for him for supper? A Snickers. What does the parent know is good for the child? Not Snickers for supper, unless it's an emergency, you know. Right? We, we understand. Of course, what is ultimately in the best interests of the weak is that as they increase in wisdom... And as they continue to reflect upon these matters biblically, with an open Bible, with their brothers and sisters, they eventually become strong. Paul assigns full responsibility for this process to the currently strong, who theoretically should be able to discern if the gospel is at stake, as in the churches in Galatia. And if it is not, 
as in Rome in this case, then do what is necessary to build the weaker brother or sister up into someone who is strong, who is now able to enjoy Christian freedom with a strong and clear conscience. This is where discipleship and submission come into play. A real, live, active church. Brothers and sisters walking humbly together, growing. Full responsibility for that? Squarely in the lap of the strong to do it patiently, patiently and in love. Point two, Christ's example to the strong. This is verses 3 and 4. Christ's example to the strong. Verse 3 provides support then for these these calls, these exhortations in verses 1 and 2 by citing Psalm 69, verse 9. That's what he's quoting there. Jesus the Messiah, the divine Son of God, come in the flesh, did not live to please Himself, but He took upon Himself the reproaches directed against God the Father. Verse 3, our verse 3 reads then this way. For, so don't please yourself, everything, when 1 and 2 and really 14 and all the way to here. For Christ did not please Himself, but as it is written, Psalm 69, verse 9, the reproaches of those who reproached you, Father, fell on me. That's the context. Jesus' life is certainly an exemplary one, which we as Christians are to seek to imitate. But before we talk about that, we must say that Christ's life is, of course, much, much more than a mere example to us that we can imitate. He is, of course, more than a teacher of righteousness, so much more than a moral example. This is Communion Sunday, and so once again on this first Sunday of the month, this routine, this means of God's grace communicates to us the great gospel truth that Jesus died a substitutionary death for His people. That is, He in fact did what the angel told Joseph He would do, namely, that He would save His people from their sins. He did this by becoming a curse for us, by hanging on a tree. He did this by taking our sins upon Himself and paying for them down to the last drop for all who by God's grace believe. And so, He is Savior, Redeemer, for all who look to Him as the all-sufficient sacrifice for their sins, and then walk with Him, bearing fruit in keeping with repentance and faith. And if He is not this, if He is not Savior and Redeemer, it, it doesn't do much good to talk about Jesus as an example or a moral teacher, or anything else, if He's not first your Savior and Redeemer. It will do you no good then, if He is not that, to follow His example. That will do you no good. That will earn you nothing. But if He is your Savior and Redeemer, then it very much is important, as Paul teaches here, 
to also speak of Jesus as an example for us. And so Jesus is an example for believers to follow, just as Paul teaches us here. Jesus obeyed the commandment to love his neighbor perfectly, as proven from Psalm 69. The psalm relates the account of a righteous sufferer who has been forsaken by his friends, attacked by his foes. Paul lifts out the verse stating that the reproaches that were directed against God have fallen upon this righteous sufferer, fulfilled ultimately then in Christ. Since this psalm is typically used in the New Testament with reference to Jesus' death, His passion, it should be then what we think about here. The idea here is that the strong should forsake their own desire for certain foods since Christ was willing to be scorned for God's honor. Christ will, will set Himself on the path of pursuing God's honor and you strong brother are fighting for your freedom? Your, your, your personal freedoms? That's the idea. He took upon himself the reproaches that were directed against God because he lived for the glory and honor of God. When repeatedly insulted, Jesus never responded in kind to those insulting him. In fact, in Luke 22... Jesus declared that the very purpose of his ministry is to do the will of the Father, not his own will. He said, Father, if you are willing, take this cup from me, yet not my will, but yours be done. There's your example, brothers and sisters, particularly the strong. There's your example. Because Jesus fulfilled the law for us, Loving his neighbor perfectly, not responding to insults heaped upon in like manner. Then through faith in him, we are reckoned as righteous as though we had also loved our neighbor perfectly. His righteousness is accounted to our account for all who by God's grace believe. Because Jesus fulfills all righteousness, now he is the example of all for all who believe. We do not, therefore, imitate Jesus to become righteous, but rather because through faith in Him we have already been reckoned, declared righteous by God the Father. That's the root. Now we Christians are to live like it by doing good to our brothers and sisters and building them up. That's the fruit. For Paul, the Scriptures play a central role in this process of living so as not to please ourselves. He, he's learning this from the Old Testament fulfilled in Christ. Verse 4, he makes that point. He observes these previous writings, the Old Testament, were set down for the instruction of believers. That's a general principle, but he sees Jesus as an example to the strong to not please themselves. Verse 4 reads this way, this general, wonderful principle. He writes, For whatever was written in former days, that is, all that was written in Scripture, was written for our instruction, believers, written for our instruction, that through endurance and through the encouragement of the Scriptures, we might have hope. 
um, maybe the, well, pr- probably the, the more famous Pauline text on the Scriptures is 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17. You're familiar with it, I, I imagine, as I read it. Quote, all Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. So because Scripture is given by God, it will not only teach us what it means to be saved, to be clothed with Christ, to walk in the Lord, Scripture also tells us how the process of being in Christ and growing in Christ, how it turns out in the end. Seeing in God's Word the goal to which God is directing us, and He will bring it to completion at the day of the Lord, Philippians 1, 6, gives us hope. And so we can endure. As Christians with God's Word before us and in us and as a light to our path, we've already read the final chapter of all of this. The final chapter of the redemptive drama, if you will. Even all of world history. So we know how the story turns out in the end, don't we? Despite what we may be going through now, we we know what will become of us, of all of this. In the end, this gives us an eternal perspective on our temporal suffering. We really do need to see the big picture. I think we draw that from the fact that God does really give us the big picture in His Word. Would you neglect to see it? Would you neglect to benefit from it? What does Paul call it? What it gives, what it works in you, the believer? Hope. Hope. This is what Paul's been writing about as well throughout Romans. I won't go on about that. He is uh, on it really heavily in Romans chapter 8, for example. I'd point you there for more on hope. But seeing the goal encourages us to persevere. Let's move on to point three in the, well, the third of three, verses five and six. Harmony in Christ Jesus to the glory of God the Father. Harmony in Christ Jesus to the glory of God the Father. That's the last of our verses, 5 and 6. And if you're really sharp, you'll see that that leaves for us next week, verses 7 to 13. Well, this point leads Paul to offer a short prayer then and benediction it's an exhortation, too. He is, after all, letting them in on, on what he's praying for them. So, it's an exhortation, too. Verse five and, verses 5 and 6 together. Let's, let's read them again. Therefore, in light of all this, may the God of endurance and encouragement grant you, give you, to live in such harmony with one another. Isn't that the subject here, what we've been talking about? In accord with Christ Jesus and His example, that together you may with one voice 
here's the landing then. Glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Yeah. Why would not Paul land there? He would. Well, so realizing that God freely gives to us in the gospel what He requires of us under the law, Paul petitions the God who gives us the very things he said we ought to have and work for in the previous verses, endurance and encouragement. He is, in fact, the God of those two things amongst so many other things. But he's the God of endurance and encouragement. He gives these things. He says then that God would, he asks that God would give that unity, the spirit of unity, so that together, as the people of God, they give glory to God the Father in accord with God the Son, together with one voice, as it were, together in heart, together in proclamation. For Paul, what is paramount here is that the unity of the church be maintained. We strive to maintain it, but God gives it and has achieved it through His Son. If the church is then practically one, it is because people have stopped fighting over the trivialities and peripherals of food and drink by God's grace, by the Spirit. And by the way, for the sake of clarity, the unity prayed for here is not unanimity. It's not lockstep agreement on the issues that divide the weak and the strong. We'll always have those issues, those disagreements between us, at least until Jesus should return and we're all perfected, glorified. Paul is not praying that unity will be achieved by way of the weak surrendering their insufficient theology. He prays that the Christians will be unified by learning to love and accept one another in the midst of their differences, all the while the strong being given the burden, right, to, to, to grow and guard the weak. Now it would be easy to conclude, I think, a sermon like this and say that unity is the ultimate purpose of, of Romans 14 to 15. We could stop there and, and perhaps no one would notice, perhaps no one would make a fuss. Unity, who's going who's gonna to argue with that? That seems like a great landing. Even if Paul himself would have landed there, no one would have been like, hey, isn't there something higher than that? Oh, but there is something higher than that. There is something more worthy to be aimed at than just simply unity. Verse 6 reveals that Paul prays for unity among believing Jews and believing Gentiles in the church so that they will worship the one God together in harmony and that thereby their unity will glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. So what is the top level? What is the great landing of such a text the apostles' thought process, it's the glory of God. God is honored, glorified when Jews and Gentiles, all saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, with all of their diversity at various levels of maturity and understanding, stand shoulder to shoulder and lift their voices in praise to God in Christ. Whatever differences may exist as long as the gospel's not at stake, remember. All who are Christ's followers nevertheless belong to the same family, fellowship, and body, and therefore belong to one another. This is how, above all other ways, 
the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ must be glorified by us before the watching world. So, brothers and sisters, note the obligation of the strong toward the weak. Note Christ's example. Note how through the Scriptures God reminds us and sustains our hope. Note how God gives endurance and encouragement so that then we might strive for it and to maintain the unity that God has achieved and given to us. And note how this is all about the glory of God, first and foremost and above all things. And then, so then, note that surely this must also be for our good and for our joy in Him. Amen. Let's pray. Father, thank You for Your Word. I pray now that through Your Spirit You would apply the Word to each of us and to us as a a body, a family, that You would be glorified. And now as we look to Christ in communion, that it would be looking for far more than an example, but that we would certainly look to Him first and above all things as our Lord, Savior, treasure. Help us to see and know Him that way. Would you save and would you build up Christians as we now remember the cost that was paid for our redemption and give us joy that it has been paid all for your glory and our good. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.